Welcome to the Sheer Law Group's podcast of Truth Serum. Law, real estate, and everything else that matters. Sheer Law Group represents lenders, landlords, and investors throughout the state of California, with offices in the San Francisco Bay Area and Orange County, California. Laws change daily. Economic trends change faster than at any time in history. Ignorance is not bliss, and the unwary and unprepared get punished if they fail to keep up. If you want insightful information on issues of interest to the real estate lender, landlord, or investor, you've come to the right place. Add on some colorful commentary on everything else that matters, and you're now ready for Truth Serum with your host, Spencer Shear. Truth Serum wants to thank Hartwood House for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Hartwood House is a world-class medical detoxification facility that's located in Marin County, California. Alcohol or drug addiction doesn't have to destroy your life or the ones you love. There is hope. For more information about Hartwood House, go to www.heartwooddetox.com. That's www.heartwooddetox.com. Hartwood House where addiction meets compassion and recovery. Truth Serum rarely makes economic calls. We're not economists, and you shouldn't make any economic decisions based on our opinions. But we follow closely and interview many economists and we follow the trends in the commercial and residential real estate market very closely. We're developing conviction that change is coming. Consider this. The core inflation rate, which is a key indicator that is closely monitored by the Fed, jumped 6.4% in February year over year. I don't have to tell you this. Everything costs more, especially gas and food, which we've got to have. Consider this. The University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, which is kind of like a statistical mood ring showing how people feel about the economy, has recently deteriorated to a negative sentiment that hasn't been seen since 2011. Bloomberg expanded on this in an article that they did in March of 2022, speculating that while Americans generally used to gripe about higher prices, they still continue to buy discretionary items. Now, recently, they've started to go out and eat and travel as the pandemic has started to wane. But, says Bloomberg, the latest price increases have really bitten into household income and consumers are hitting the breaking point. Consider this. Mortgage rates have jumped to the highest rate since 2018. Freddie Mac reported at the end of March 2022 that the average rate for a 30-year fixed home loan jumped to 4.67%. It was as low as 2.6% a few months ago. This will make home affordability even harder. And meanwhile, rental rates are skyrocketing. Most telling to Two Serum is that A. Gary Schilling, who's been almost prescient in his calls for economic expansion or contraction or inflation and deflation, recently opined that consumer spending and current economic growth are unsustainable. He backs up his opinions with current statistics and economic history, and he concludes that one likely result may be the bursting of the single-family housing bubble. So if you mix up a cocktail of escalating prices on non-discretionary items like food and gas, higher mortgage rates, and already unaffordable housing prices, something's got to give. 
and Schilling says that the residential housing market may be one of the first casualties. Why would this matter to you? For a lot of reasons. One big one cited by Schilling is that many people have quit their jobs or have retired early because of COVID-19, assuming that real estate appreciation will cover their retirement. And they may be wrong. True Serum agrees. We've begun to see anecdotal and day-to-day evidence that foreclosure and loan defaults are rising. The days of easy money appear to be over, or at least they appear to be on hold. And while the government may attempt another round of real or hidden stimulus, it doesn't look like it would be as effective to stem the tide. And this time, the economic problems may be structural. The housing bubble that was deflated after the Great Recession was reflated by an injection of liquidity and easy money that was never before seen in the history of planet Earth. MMT, modern monetary theory, which is a theory that governments can control their own currency and borrow on their own currency and never will default because they can just create more money to pay for the debts, has actually been seriously advocated by people. It's been used recently in the U.S. We clearly played out this theory during the pandemic, printing out trillions. But now there's questions of whether everyone else in the world is going to continue to play along with this tune. The U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. It allows us to make, enjoy a standard of life, even though we've got debt that is in the trillions. We attempt to pull the rug out from Russia, however, by limiting their access to U.S. dollars in retaliation for its invasion of the Ukraine. And now the Russians in retaliation are seeking to team up with other non-friendlies to get out from under the hegemony of the dollar. There's a growing sentiment that central banks may not be the best way to control monetary policy and that monetary policy based on digital currency that's controlled by the sovereigns or their proxies is on the horizon. Perhaps it'll take years to develop, but a recession brought on in part by the collapse or the retrenchment of the single-family housing market could be one of the few catalysts that accelerates this trend. Stay tuned. Don't let this potential for economic change make you fearful. There's plenty to be encouraged about. Hopefully, if you're listening to this podcast, you're still alive and well. Hopefully, you have loved ones that care about you and that you care about. It's faith and hope and love that will help us through the best and the worst of times. However, if you or someone you live with find yourself trapped in the cycle of drug or alcohol addiction, which has become an epidemic in this nation, join me as I interview Andrea Ashley, the host of the skyrocketing podcast for addicts and recovering addicts, and those that live with them called adult child. Andrea and I will discuss the problems facing those seek to recover from drug and alcohol addiction and how in many cases just getting clean or sober may not be enough. Sometimes even when you achieve sobriety, some are still a prisoner to habits that were instilled or developed at childhood from a dysfunctional upbringing. Listen as Andrea Ashley describes the concept of adult child and how some addicts and alcoholics may need to become free of those issues in order to really recover from addiction. If you or someone you love is bound by addiction, you'll want to listen to this podcast. Truth Serum wants to thank Iron Oak Home Loans for becoming a sponsor of the Truth Serum podcast. Iron Oak is a full-service portfolio private money lender, and it's a servicing company. It's located in San Ramon, California, helping its investors to achieve maximum return 
by investing primarily in California real estate. For borrowers, not all borrowers have AAA credit, and sometimes you need a lender who understands and who can get you a loan when you need it most. Iron Oak can help. Great service and great people. If you want more information, go to www.ironoak1.com. That's www.ironoak1.com. Or call Rich at 925-803-2465. Or call Christy Mathers at 925-281-2809. Laws and Real Estate. Andrea Ashley, let me give my listeners some background about who you are. You're a yes. former CPA. However, that was in a past life. You were addicted to drugs and alcohol at 12 years old, and you battled it until you finally obtained sobriety at the age of 19. After 13 years of continuous sobriety, you had what you described as a second great surrender by coming to terms with the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family and how that impacted your life. You now focus your time and your energy on a very successful podcast that you produce and host called Adult Child Podcast. A central theme of the podcast is that alcohol and drug addictions only one manifestation of a deeper problem. An addiction can't be separated from the impact of the family and family dysfunction that leads to addictive behaviors. Your podcast mm-hmm. is getting national traction. You've had more than 210,000 downloads. Ashley, welcome to Truth Serum. Andrea, it's okay. I get that all the time. Last name's Ashley. Oh, you know what I'm afraid of? Thanks for having me. Yes. I'm used to it. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but on Facebook, there's some girls that instead of having their last name, they like put their middle name. They're like Jessica Marie or like Elizabeth Noel. And I'm scared to death that people think that I'm one of those girls. I am not one of those girls. My last name is actually Ashley. So don't think <laughs> that I'm one of those girls that has her middle name as her last name. So I'm glad we got good, to clear that up to- right up front. Yes, good way to rescue me from my ineptitude. Thank you. <laughs> it's better than calling me Andrea. That's my pet peeve, is being called Andrea. I won't do that. Okay. All right, here's my first question. Give my listeners a little bit of background about your life and your battle mm. for drug and alcohol-free life when you were a teenager. Mm. Yeah, so I, um, you know, I grew up um, in an alcoholic home. My mom was an alcoholic, and I found out that she was an alcoholic when I was eight or seven or eight, we were literally out to dinner and uh, I could tell that something was wrong. And when I asked, my mom was like, I'm an alcoholic. And I obviously didn't know what the hell that meant. It was seven. (laughs) And so she said, that means I can't drink. And, um, it was amazing how, how it was like, I woke up the next day and I had just developed this sixth sense when it came to her, her drinking, like I could feel it in my body before hours before she would even pick up a drink, you know, it was just like, I developed this sixth sense, but, um, and my dad traveled a lot for work. And so I was doing a lot of caretaking and stuff like that. But it goes to say that, you know, I think that there's certain kids that grow up in an alcoholic home who think I'm never going to touch it. Um, and for me, it wasn't that I said I was never going to touch it. I just said I was never going to be like my mom. It's funny. I was just telling this story. I actually went to my very first AA meeting when I was, 12, my mom had 90 days sober. I went to this meeting with her and it was an open meeting, meaning that anyone could share. And I raised my hand and I said, 
Hi, I'm Andrea, and I don't want to be an alcoholic. (laughs) And I found myself in rehab like about a year and a half later for the first time. Um, But yeah, so I started drinking and, you know, smoking pot, drinking at 12, smoking pot at 13. And um, obviously it's on both sides of my family. I didn't stand a chance. Um, but really what happened was that like, I got scapegoated. Like I became the identified patient of my family. Um, that had even happened before then, you know, at nine years old, I developed separation anxiety. It was clearly related to my mother's alcoholism, but I got sent to, to a therapist. And I remember asking my mom years later, did you ever tell that therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And it was like, she, her response was, no, it didn't seem relevant. Uh, so, so, you, so you became the so, focus. So I became the focus of the family, you know, and I will tell you um, that it worked as far as fixing the family. When I acted out, when I was from the ages of like 12 to 19, when I was the focus of the family, my mom stopped, my mom stopped drinking and my parents stopped fighting. It worked. Tough Um, way to make it work. um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't think that's why, like granted it's in my genetics, like I was going to become an alcoholic no matter what, but I'm sure that part of it was there a cry for help. Who knows? There's so many different things going on, but um, yeah, I, at 16, I, I, I feel like I really kind of crossed the line. You hear the expression that an alcoholic is a pickle. So like once a cucumber becomes a pickle, it can never go back to being a cucumber again. And that's how I feel about alcoholism. And I feel like that happened for me around like age 15, 16, that like every time I drank, um, I had a total personality change for the worst. I truly was horrible to be around. And I will tell you this story to give a a good picture of of what that was like. So this was when I was a senior in high school and mind you in and out of rehabs, boarding schools, outpatients, like all throughout high school. But so I'm a senior in high school. I get invited to this party. I was only allowed to attend if I could drink beer only. Initially, I was told I could not drink at all, but I was able to negotiate to to beer only. And that was because of some recent incidences where I had been um, a hot mess. So I drink a bottle of wine by myself before I go. I go to the party. I'm planning on drinking beer only. I'm an alcoholic. My intentions don't mean anything when it comes to alcohol. So I get into the hard liquor and then I shortly after that get escorted home. I get two people from the party drive me home. So what do I do? Well, I called a taxi and I had that taxi take me right back to the party. (laughs) And when my re-arrival was not warmly welcomed, well, I caused quite a scene. I made quite a lot of noise causing the neighbors to call the cops and everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. So that's who I was. So I know you're probably really bummed that you didn't have the opportunity to drink with me because I was quite a party animal. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but I, I have my own stories. But fortunately, this is my interview of you. So I don't have to tell you mine. I'll get you mine. So, uh, ge- yeah, so generally, just go ahead. No, go ahead. Right. You finish it. I was just going to say, you know, so I, you know, I, I, I went to college my, my world became so isolated. And I think a large reason that I was able to get sober so young was because of how much of a monster I turned into when I drank that my life was so, so, so isolated. 
it was impossible for me to have relationships with other people. And by 18, I was a around the clock drinker. Um, and then thankfully, um, you know, I got sober at 18. I stayed sober for about six months, relapsed, um, and was out for about a few months. And then I got sober again at 19. Um, and, and thank God. I'm so grateful. So September 13th, 2008 is my sobriety date. Thank God it is. G generally describe, if you would, the concept of what it means to be an adult child, because I think you're connecting, and that's what makes your podcast so unique, is you're connecting the concept that it's not just enough to stop addiction, but sometimes you have to get back into the causes for it. Yeah, you know, I, um, I always knew that my upbringing was less than ideal, but I also knew that other kids had it way worse than me. You know, like I was not physically or sexually abused. Um, all of my needs had always been accounted for. Um, and so I really, and I also thought that since I could talk about it and since I wasn't in denial of what my experience was, then that also meant that it must not have impacted me very much. Um, but my story is that, you know, I, uh, most people come into sobriety with like a broken romantic picker. I mean, most of us don't enter sobriety with like a high self-esteem and a plethora of healthy relationship experience, <laughs> at least in my experience. But what I started to see happen was that, um, my friends who also came in with broken pickers, I saw their pickers improve while mine was not. And not only was my picker not improving the way that I was responding and reacting in each new relationship was worse than the last. I mean, I would soon learn, which I had no idea at the time that I was literally, I was having a trauma response. I was literally suffering from complex PTSD, which I had no idea about, but um, yeah. So I, for years, I just couldn't figure out what the heck was wrong with me. You know, like why was I completely incapable of doing things differently in the next relationship? I mean, I was just the queen of ignoring red flags. I wasn't even ignoring them. I mean, I was acknowledging them and just like proceeding, <laughs> but um. It was at seven years sober. You said, so you said in the intro, so now I have 13 years, but I hit this adult child bottom at, um, at nine years. So, but I had my first little bottom at seven years. So my, my adult child bottom, I call the tale of two Brian's. So I dated Brian number one at seven years and Brian number two at nine years. So when I dated Brian number one, they're both alcoholics. I dated Brian number one for less than a month. And I literally wanted to die. Like when he broke up with me. Like you would have thought my husband of like 30 years had just dropped dead from a heart attack. And, um, that's when I had my first like aha moment when I realized that there was no way that the reaction that I was having, that these feelings that I was having could actually be about this person. You know, it was just so, um, I mean, I was, I felt like I was going to die. There was no way that somebody I knew for less than a month who clearly had a drinking problem like, was the reason that I was feeling this way. And then the second aha I had was that this was a feeling that I had felt often as a child. And it was the same feeling that I had with the separation anxiety that I felt with my mom that I started to experience at nine years old. And so that was like the first time that I was able to connect the dots that my issues and romantic relationships were related to my childhood. So I went to a meeting, I heard a woman share about, um, uh, she mentioned this book, Adult Children of Alcoholic and Dysfunctional Families. So I went home, I read the book, it blew my mind. 
I saw her the next week. I went up to her. I said, your share impacted me so much. I read that book. It's amazing. She goes, that's great, Andrea, but I just want to let you know that just reading that book is not going to suffice. This is going to take you years to work through and a lot of therapy. And I was just thinking years. I was like, lady, I'm 28. Like I'm basically a senior citizen. Like I need to have this fixed yesterday or at most like a couple of months. Uh, And so I was really just hoping that her childhood was like a lot worse than mine was. And so I was like, okay, I was like, I'll take a year off from dating. I've read this book and that should be good enough. Um, And like, what I like to say is, you know, just like learning, learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Like simply learning that my dating issues were related to my childhood. Like that wasn't sufficient enough to produce any sort of internal shift in me. So enter Brian number two, uh, the most painful six months of my life. Um, But at the end of that, I realized the severity of what I was dealing with. Uh, I realized that what I was dealing with was much more powerful than my alcoholism um, and that my life depended upon um, facing it. So, you know, the term adult child, it's basically somebody who grew initially it was a term just for um, people who grew up in an alcoholic home. But it wasn't long before they realized that there's tons of different dysfunctional family types that could produce an adult child. But it's essentially somebody who grew up in a dysfunctional family system whose unresolved childhood pain emerges like you know emerges and plays out in adulthood and not in a good way um so some of the most common symptoms would be you know codependency um people pleasing approval seeking um an overdeveloped responsibility uh low self-esteem super judgmental um compulsive but what i believe to be at the heart of it is is complex trauma so that was not something that i was familiar with at the time but you know, what complex trauma is, I think we have this idea of like big T trauma, like going to war, being sexually assaulted, um, a car accident, but you know, there's little T trauma, which is probably things that people don't even consider to be trauma. So what I realized was that like my entire childhood was a series of traumas. And so what complex trauma is, it's kind of like an accumulation of these more little T traumas that happened during childhood. And actually the impact of that is actually a lot more severe than experiencing one big T trauma in adulthood because um, experiencing complex trauma during childhood really messes up our, well, one, it's still when our brain is developing, so it's impacting that. And also, two, it really messes up our our concept of self, you know, self-worth, self-image. Let, let, me, let me interject one thing real quick, because one example I think you gave, I heard that in one of your interviews, was uh, complex trauma can result from repetitive criticism. Mm-hmm. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it could be from repetitive criticism. It could be. It's like little things like that that parents don't even see, like mean. It could, it could come from a parent that is um, hyper-controlling. It could come from a parent who is... Um, like parentification. So I can say for me, like my mom's alcoholism was a secret from the rest of the world. So he talked about it with me. So, you know, like having a parent use a child as their emotional support or confidant. Um, and none of this is to say that like, when we're saying these things, we're not, it's my big message is like, this is not about like throwing our parents under the bus. Um, this stuff doesn't just like pop out of nowhere. Um, you know, I didn't think that I could experience abuse or trauma because I didn't feel like my parents ever intentionally tried to harm me. 
And they didn't, you know, like we're all just a product of our own upbringing. But that's why I think it's so important and why I felt so moved to create this podcast, because I think that there's just so many people out there who are oblivious to the fact that the recurring issues that they encounter in life is probably actually a result of some unresolved childhood stuff, you know, and they have, and what happens is, um, in adulthood is like this, whether you want to call it pain or trauma, this unresolved stuff from childhood gets triggered, but we don't realize that that that's what's going on. We think that it's about the present circumstance. We think it's about the present situation, you know, but in reality, it's about the past. And so that's what was happening to me. And every time I got into a romantic relationship and it's like, until we face those demons and resolve that stuff, we're going to continue to sabotage our current day situations and relationships based off this unresolved pain of the past. Amazing. All right. Let me take the other side of the coin just so we can get some discussion going here. Ready for that? Mm-hmm. Is uh, Some children grew up in completely dysfunctional homes. And there can be alcoholism, abuse, or little or no emotional support. Yet they seem to transcend the circumstances and they're successful in both career and relationships. What do you think accounts for that? I think that there's so many factors that go into it. I know that one big thing is um, what other kind of support there is. Um, So, for example, grandparents or maybe there's like a teacher or a coach, but if a child has other adult figures in their life that are solid, um, you know, emotional support and that are healthy, that can have a big impact. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, like somebody could experience something like really horrible, um, and turn out okay. And somebody could experience something minor. It's also relative. I just don't, that's why I think it's important that people don't compare their trauma But the other thing too is like somebody might seem successful in career and relationship, but you really have no idea what's actually going on. You know, in a way, I think it's more beneficial. This is how I feel. I almost feel like it's better when it it manifests in more obvious ways, because then those people are more likely to actually get the help that they need versus somebody else who has it kind of manifest in more subtle ways. And perhaps they never address it. That's good. Very good point. All right. You've identified the concept that family dysfunctions and addictions could be generational, meaning passed on from one generation to another. I think this has been validated by studies. Uh, Is it important to recovery that uh, an affected family member understand the concept of generational dysfunction? What do you mean? The person that's trying to heal or their family? Well, let's say that's a good, that's a good counter question. Both. I mean, for someone who was impacted by what you might refer to as generational dysfunction, alcoholism is going down three, four deep generationally in their family. It seems to be something that uh, it's even beyond just the individual's choice. Uh, Is it important that they know that and understand that, or is it still just an issue of how they deal with it? I mean, I think that it's important from the concept that it just takes some of the shame out of it. You know, like... um I have this couple, I had them on my podcast, they're interventionalists. And that's one thing that they do when they, before they even start like the actual intervention with the, um, whoever the person of issue is, is they make like a big family tree and they look at everything. It's like, oh, this, you know, they came over from like Ireland 
when there was the famine and, you know, this person had mental illness and this person has alcoholism. So I think that it's important from the standpoint of like understanding that we're not um, inherently flawed or that there's something wrong with us, you know? Um, And I think it also just goes to show too the importance of working on it and trying to heal so that you don't pass it on. Good. All right. You can't control and I think life. Too, it also takes if- some of the, I, I think it also takes away some too of like the blame too. like, that is one big thing. A lot of criticism that sometimes I get on like my videos that I post on like TikTok and stuff like that is that people think that if you're talking about your upbringing, that that's throwing your parents under the bus and that's not the deal. Like we are talking about it because we need to understand the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are in order to heal. But it has nothing to do with blame because as I said before, this shit just doesn't pop out of nowhere. This stuff gets, you know, passed from generation to generation. It didn't start with our parents. It probably didn't even start with our grandparents, but we have to talk about it in order to heal. Good. No, well said. I was going to say you can't control life, but uh, if you were advising a parent of two or three things they might be able to do to help avoid addiction in their in their family, what would you what would you recommend? Hmm. <laughs> I feel like if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Um, mm. Do you think that's true? Is that because I, 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 I sometimes there is that sense of that there's inevitability. A person's going to be a person, but yeah, I, I can see. You know, you're talking about family dysfunctions. Everybody's got them. Yeah. Uh, if your family knew that they had dysfunctions, is, are there things they can do to work on that would help their kids to avoid uh, that trap? The yeah, I think trap? it's all about. I think what it all starts with is ourselves, right? So it's all about like let's say. Uh, there's a parent and they know that they grew up in a dysfunctional family and they don't want to produce the same effects in their child. Well, then the most important thing that they can do is to seek healing and recovery for themselves, you know, and it's, it starts from the inside. So I think by working on their own stuff and healing that stuff, it's all about energy, right? So. Yeah, I mean, energy is a, is a, I, that's a it's a that's a pretty big concept. I, I personally, I have my own feeling that everybody grows up flawed. Everybody's got their sins, and they manifest in different ways. But I, uh, you know, I do think sometimes that if you do have some sense of, of where it came from, like you're saying, that you can you know avoid it. Certainly, I think if you even look at birth order, the first child seems to have a harder time of it than the second child. But I was wondering if from what you've been through, maybe it's you'll have a family someday. What would you do? Well, it's been interesting just to hear, um, cause I have a, I have a support community where I host, um, two weekly support groups. And so it's been really interesting to hear these women who are parents that are in this journey and doing their own work. And then they're able to identify like in the moment when maybe something is coming up or they're acting in a certain way that is result like as a result of, you know, their own childhood experiences and being able to identify it and course correct. So I think that that's why it's so important to do the own work because then you have kind of the awareness and you're able to kind of shift your behavior. And it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. You're going to be a perfect parent. Um, but also too, like getting healthy too is also important because if down the road, your child does have an issue, like you're going to be able to be there and be a solid, you know, emotional support. 
for them. If you've done your own work to, you know, heal your own unresolved business. Good. So I'm translating what you just said to saying that, that maybe one of the most effective things you can do is heal yourself first, right? Absolutely. You're not going to be able to heal anyone else. <laughs> and also, right, too, I, I, I really to caution- interview- Go ahead. No, you go. I was just going to say that, like, unfortunately, I would love for like everybody on in the family, like to get on board and get on the recovery and the healing train. And it, like it says in AA, it's like attraction rather than promotion. Honestly, like that is how you're going to be able to inflict the most amount of change in somebody else is if you change yourself and are exuding that behavior, as opposed to telling them what's wrong with them and what they need to change. Good. And I appreciate you saying that. Now, listen to the interview you did. Someone asked you if you thought addiction was an illness, a disease, a choice, or a wicked twist of fate. And your answer was a threefold disease of the mind, body, and soul. And word of choice, I definitely would have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. So let me break down that answer just a little bit for people who, you know, maybe they're not familiar with addiction. I've had experience, I, uh, you know, with, with a lot of, of people you know, very close to me who've been through this, but let's talk about the body first. Is a medical detox, do you think, absolutely the first step that has to take place to, to deal with addiction or is it an, an integrated approach? So if mind, body, and soul are, are the things that need to be healed, is body first? Well, yeah, yeah, but I think it's just like different, but based off certain addictions, you know? Um, yeah, obviously, like... You're going to be able to treat the, 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 the mind and the soul if you're still drunk. <laughs> so, yes, I think that a physical sobriety is for sure number one. <laughs> I don't think anything else can happen until that. All right. So let, let's separate if we can. And I'm just breaking this down. So if the soul is your mind, emotions, and your will as opposed to, to the part of us, the spirit that can conceptualize God and eternity, how do you approach healing of the soul? Hmm. Too esoteric? Am I what? Am I what? Is that too esoteric a question or what? No, it is, but I'll answer it. Um, You know, it's interesting because I feel like my answer to this has shifted or my perspective of it has shifted so much just in my my adult child recovery, just because I have like such a different um, understanding of truly like what is at the core, you know, I really thought that it was alcoholism, but what I've learned is that alcoholism was just a symptom of, you know, and people say that, that the alcohol is a symptom of the alcoholism. But what I've realized is that the alcoholism was just a symptom of what I truly believe at the core is it's, you know, this disease of family dysfunction that manifests in different ways. So when it comes to like the soul. I mean, this has just been, so part of, part of, um, hitting my bottom, my adult child bottom was the realization of how much I had been selling myself short in life, especially like from a career perspective. And so it was not just like embarking on healing, but it was embarking on, um, figuring out why I was put on this earth. Like what is my greater purpose? And so that's why I think adult child recovery is so amazing because it's not just about, um, it's not just about healing pain. It's about unearthing our like most authentic and highest selves 
these true selves of ours that go into hiding as kids because we had to, you know, our true selves had to go into hiding in order to survive. And so I think that this journey, like this recovery journey is all about, um, breaking away all these limiting beliefs and fears that we hold about ourselves that block us from the sunlight of the spirit and from true connection from others. Um, yeah, it's just been, it's just been such an amazing experience to just, um, to work through this stuff and just the connection with others in the universe. And it's just been so, um, I've never felt so heard and so seen and so understood. And granted I have, I have so much more work to do. Um, but it's been, but it's been by clearing all of this away that I've been able to, you know, connect with my true self and my higher power in such a profound way. Good. Let's get to the the trio of body, mind, and spirit. Let's go to spirit for a second. You said higher power. So programs like AA and NA they they traditionally encourage addicts or alcoholics to to find God and, or a higher power outside themselves to aid in recovery. What's what's your take on that? You know, <clears throat> there's a lot of people who say you know that it's it's the God thing. It's the higher power thing that keeps them from like coming into the rooms. Here's the deal. I just feel like when people get to a certain place, they're willing to do whatever, and that will go out the window. Yeah. I mean, here you can come in, you can be an atheist if you want. Like it's, there's a ton of people that come in, um, that are staunch atheists, but yeah, it could be whatever you want. It has nothing to do with religion or God. I mean, the 12 steps was rooted from, it was the Oxford group, which I think was some sort of a religious organization, but, um, it's, I think people can pick up on anything to try to prevent themselves from getting sober. And there's other options too, right? I don't think that the 12 steps is the only way to sobriety. Um, but you could, what I will tell sponsees if they have issues with that, I was like, okay, but can you just believe that I believe, or at least you have a belief that you're not the highest being in the whole earth, like clearly you're not the highest power or you wouldn't be sitting in this AA meeting right now, <laughs> you know? <laughs> How so, about forgiveness? Yeah. Does forgiveness play a, a, a critical role in healing? Yeah. A lot of self-forgiveness. You know, I really beat myself up. Um, I felt so much shame about how I, um, especially how I acted in a romantic relationship. It was different with that, with, with the alcohol and drugs. I was able to give myself like a little bit more of a pass because I truly understood, um, that I was suffering from a disease and that when I ingest drugs and alcohol, that my body just wants more of it and all bets are off. It was a little bit harder for me to understand that as it related to kind of the adult child codependency stuff. Um, but what I've, Where's the quote? I read this. There was a quote that I was just reading that was really good. Um, wh what was big for me as far as self-forgiveness goes is um, that uh, realizing that I was suffering from trauma and that it really, I really didn't have a choice. Um, when I would get in, it was very similar to like when, it, when I ingest alcohol, all bets are off. And it was like when I got into a relationship like all, all bets are off, like until I had processed my trauma. So it says, 
This is from the um, the adult children um, big book. It says, before we found ACA, most of us blamed ourselves for bad choices, when in reality, we had no true choice. Overpowering feelings ruled our lives through compulsions and obsessions. Um, so yeah, this, the self-forgiveness piece. I've never, I've never um, been in a place of having like a lot of blame um, towards my parents. So that's not been something that I've, I haven't held like a big resentment towards them. Although they're, it's not good. They're not All right, good. let me switch a little bit now. You've interviewed a lot of very interesting people on your podcast, including uh, Dr. Drew. What was one of the biggest surprises you had interviewing someone you thought might act one way and they turned out to be something totally different? Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Drew was very much just like what you see is what you get. That was crazy. I got to go on his show, um, like only two months after I launched my podcast, which was freaking nuts. Um, yeah, he's very just tried and true. What you see is what you get. Um, there's been a few people, one person in particular, I didn't end up playing the interview, but one thing I've noticed, and I'm all about like authentic, just vulnerable conversation. I've noticed sometimes that the larger somebody's social media following is, um, the worse of an interview it can be. <laughs> Why like I, I interviewed somebody that had a very, very large following, and I didn't even use the interview. It was just not authentic. No, thank you. <laughs> Let me let's talk about hope for a second. I, you know, I, I see, because uh, I get that. You know, a lot of what I'm getting from talking to you and just listening to some of your podcasts are that you know, sometimes you can be trapped in these cycles of things that maybe you know, they took root when you were just a little kid. Do you ever feel like you're really free of, of these so-called dysfunctions, how, we, how we're discussing them, or are they just a matter of controlling them? Because um, I'm wondering, for those people, many people are, are, are very much trapped in these, in these feelings of despair. Offer them some hope. How would you, how would you do that? Well, I think it's unrealistic to think that it'll just like go away completely. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like alcoholism, right? Um, but yeah, it has been, um, you know, I've had some experiences recently, like dating stuff. Um, and it's been really powerful to see the, the change in me um, and how I would have spun out, um, or, uh, certain things would make me, I would spin into like, I'm the problem. I'm not enough. There's something wrong with me. And so I think what's been the most amazing thing is one to, um, the sense of self that I've cultivated and kind of like the sense of purpose in life that I've cultivated, but also to, so I, I think it's unrealistic to think that I'll never be triggered you know, like we can work through this stuff, but I think that as somebody who suffers from complex trauma from time to time, there's going to be triggers, but what's been really amazing is just the experience that happens. So like my body might, I might start to go into like a bit of a trauma response, but what's going on in my head is completely different than what it was before. And I'm able to identify in the moment, the reason that you think you're upset is not the reason that you think you're upset. And being able to kind of sit with that, breathe in it, and then have it go away rather quickly. Whereas before it was just all consuming. 
and debilitating. So yes, there's hope. Um, there is, I mean, look at this podcast. I mean, everything that happened, I want to share, I don't know if you heard this, but did you hear about how I heard from Brian number one? Okay. So this guy, he ghosted me after dating <laughs> me for, for a month and I wanted to die. Uh, and so, uh, that was in 2015 and I had not heard from him since 2015. And a couple of weeks ago, I go on Instagram and I had a message from him. Um, let me read it to you. And so, yeah, I literally, so this person had a drinking problem, um, (laughs) but I didn't care. This was my soulmate and there was never going to be anyone ever again. Um, I was going to be single for the rest of my life. So this is what he said. He goes, hello, hope all is well. I've been following you on Instagram and what you're doing is incredible. I'm struggling with alcoholism and have been to 30 day treatment twice since I saw you. And this disease is why I couldn't connect with you. And I'm so sorry for that. Your message is connected, truthful, and no doubt help many people, including me. So thank you. I wish you success and the best life has to offer. Keep your message strong and thank you again. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it kind of, it kind of, it, yeah. It shows. Uh, it shows. Even if your head's thinking one thing, it shows the reality that this 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 man was for you. Yeah, and if you want to talk about hope, I mean, literally, the pain that I felt in that moment when he broke up with me. If you had told me what laid ahead, well, actually, what actually laid ahead was like there was going to be a Brian number two, and that was even going to be worse and even more painful. But what would come from that would be hitting this bottom, starting this healing journey, embarking on this journey to figure out why I was put on this earth, starting a podcast, impacting thousands of people's lives, and getting that message from Brian number one. I would have told you you were crazy. So we just never know what can come of our pain, you know? Yes, that's one thing I was going to ask you about that because I know you you speak a lot about suffering, and I believe that too. I think suffering can oftentimes lead to good, but it seems like sometimes suffering can lead to bitterness. I uh, you know where people just go over the, they they go over the same issues over and over until they become bitter and angry. Other people's suffering lead them to uh, to change and positive change. What's the difference? I think it's when people stay rooted in blame. You know, I think it's when people, it's, especially when it comes to this stuff, like, yeah, it's not our fault that we had our, our upbringing. It's not fair that we grew up in a dysfunctional upbringing, but unfortunately, like we're the only ones that can do anything about it. Like our parents can't go to therapy for us and heal our trauma. Um, so I think that's what it is. I think it's kind of like a lack of, um, of like personal responsibility in my opinion. All right, switch to something very positive, and that is you've uh, just published your 50th podcast episode. Uh, tell me, how does that feel, and what's, what's the plan for the future? Well, guys, I am an official podcast, week two official podcaster, um, p- partially by choice, partially not. Here's the deal. I launched this podcast. Uh, it's been the most amazing experience, but... Uh, the one negative is that it made me freaking hate my day job like so much. <laughs> I wish I could be somebody that works hard no matter what I'm not. Um, so yeah, so I, I parted ways with my firm 
Uh, so I'm a, yeah, I'm a recovering CPA as well. I'm a recovering alcoholic, a recovering shit show and a recovering CPA. Um, and I, I truly believe that this is my calling. I mean, look at everything we just talked about the message from Brian, number one, um, I know that this is what I'm meant to do. I launched this thing without having any prior podcast experience, any built-in following, and this thing has just blown up. Um, And there's still so many more people out there who have yet to discover the pod that really need to discover the pod. So I'm, yeah, I'm in the process of just trying to figure out how to to monetize this. And um, my long-term vision is I'd really love to start a... um, uh, an addiction and trauma podcast network. Surprisingly, there is not a an addiction podcast network, which I think is crazy. Um, so I think that there, that's a huge opportunity. You know, I just really want it to be rooted in authenticity and vulnerability and storytelling and also humor. I think that that's really important is to add a level of humor to it. So yeah, I'm just looking for sponsors or just like billionaires who just have too much money and just like want to give me like a little bit. <laughs> that's, that's, many of our listeners will fit that bill. Yeah, please. I'm helping people. Yeah, You guys read the damn reviews, read the damn reviews of my podcast. You will see how this podcast is impacting people. Um, but what I have to tell myself is like, you know, things are coming together. It's just like slower than I would like. But what I have to tell myself is like, I know that this is what I'm meant to be doing. And I really truly believe that my higher power is not going to let me go to waste, you know? So I have to really just stay. I will say, I will say amen to that. Now tell people if you would, it will finish up here now tell my listeners where they can get a hold of you, certainly on your podcast or how you'd like anybody to communicate with you. Yeah. Well, my social security number is, no, I'm kidding. Um, you can find me on, uh, Instagram and TikTok at adult child pod. So just adult child and the POD. My website is adultchildpodcast.com. You can email me at andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. And you can find me on any damn podcast platform, Adult Child. Andrea, good to talk to you. I really enjoyed talking to you. I wish you the best. And I think what you've said today will increase other people's hope quotient. And uh, if I can ever do anything for you, let me know. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Sheer Law Group's podcast, Truth Serum, law, real estate, and everything else that matters. For more on the law, go to www.shearlawgroup.com or contact Spencer or Joshua Shear. For more info on real estate, see your real estate broker or agent. Don't forget to mow your lawn, trim your hedges, and pay your mortgage. For more information on everything else that matters, Read good books, cultivate good friends that you can share ideas with, pray often, and do not place your hopes in governmental institutions. Write Spencer Shear if you want to argue the points made in this podcast. Finally, this podcast cannot be relied on as legal advice, and SLG disclaims any responsibility for the ideas presented. See an attorney if you have issues or problems related to the subjects mentioned in this podcast. Adios, amigos. Adios, amigos.